Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome back to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Another guest for you today who falls into the done-it-all category. He first exploded onto the UK music scene in 1975 as the lead guitarist and vocalist of the band Doctors of Madness, which heralded the punk movement two or three years before it actually came along, but sadly didn't last long enough to enjoy that success. He then went on to do a number of uh, solo endeavours, not only musically, but also as the curator of the Cabaret Futura brand in Soho, putting together a mixture of spoken word, uh, spectacular performance art, and music as well. He also writes, he curates, he puts together festivals, he educates, he lectures at a variety of uh, secondary and tertiary uh, educational institutions internationally. The list goes on and on and on. His CV runs to pages and every last vestige of it is fascinating. He's also an actor and you'll have seen him around and about in movies as diverse as Tim Burton's Batman, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, amongst many, many others. He is a true polymath. His name is Richard Strange, and we sat down recently to have what was an extremely interesting conversation. See for yourself. Uh, Richard, of the... 22 guests I've interviewed for this series to date. I don't think any has had quite such an eye-stretchingly diverse career. Um, Musician, actor, writer, creator, uh, curator, broadcaster, chat show host. Um, I mean, you've sort of been a bit of a a magnet for all sorts of forms of popular culture over the last um, 45, 50 years. But going all the way back, did you grow up in an environment rich in creativity? Absolutely not. We 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 hated the arts in in, in my house. We we uh, we. I grew up in in South London in a sort of lower middle class uh, aspirational family. Uh, I grew up in the fifties. I was born in nineteen fifty one. My mother was uh, 
working class. My father was lower middle class. Uh, he was a statistician. Uh, the closest we got to culture was um, listening to the news, I suppose, on the radio. Classical music was ab abhorrent. Art was for uh, um, Bohemians. Uh, we even mistrusted anything that ended with a vowel because it was foreign, you know, and like, so uh, spaghetti didn't get a look into, into our house until my eldest brother uh, talked my parents into letting him go on a school trip to Italy, you know, and that was, that was like the door being kicked open. But no, there was one person in my immediate bloodline who, well, there's two, okay. My great-great-uncle on my father's side was Sir Arthur Quilla Cooch, who was the, um, the great, um, uh, well, he was a, an essayist, he was a, a, a writer, but he also was the great anthologizer of British verse. And for a long time, he was the, the Oxford Book of British verse, uh, which he anthologized, uh, was the go-to set book or, or, or textbook for um, English taught in schools across, not just the kingdom, but across the, the empire, as then was, I imagine. So that was, so I, who of course I never met, he was much, much older, but he was a, a sort of a contemporary of H.G. Um, uh, Wells, I think, and uh, um, what was his name? Uh, Balzac, and, uh, not, not Balzac, um, uh, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, so he's one. And then my mother's brother, Stan, Uncle Stan, was a light entertainer uh, as part of a, a four-piece vocal combo, both before and after the Second World War. And they were called the Radio Revelers. So the Radio Revelers enjoyed a lot of success, um, especially before the war. They were part of that musical variety uh, um, uh, circuit. And they did well, they, they sang sort of novelty songs with great skill and great precision and great humor. They could whistle in four part harmony and so on. Um, when Uncle Stan died, my aunt found a tape, which was lovely, and this is just to, to contextualize them a bit. She found a, a, a cassette tape when the BBC Light program, I think as then was, 1962, we're doing a news feature and they said, we've heard about this thing called Beatlemania, which is supposed to be uh, uh, setting the country alight. And we sent our man out into the field to see if there's any truth in the matter. So you can imagine the old boy with the trilby hat and the raincoat going up to Halifax or somewhere and saying, excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, do the, do the names John, George, Paul and Ringo mean anything to you? you know? Oh, no, I don't think so. Not Ringo, no, no. What about the names Al, Art, Fred, and Stan? Oh yes, that's the Radio Revelers. <laughs> so they were they were that big, you know. They they could have been as big as the Beatles, but once they were even bigger. <laughs> so the uh, we will come very very shortly onto sort of where you first erupted into public consciousness. So, but the the manner in which the the style in which you you. Um, uh, broke, I suppose, from that family um, setting, the the um, mistrust of the arts. Um, was that 
did that start out as an act of rebellion and turn into a career? Or? I think it probably did because to contextualise it, the 60s were the age of rebellion. Unfortunately, they were also the age of Engelbert Humperdinck and Ken Dodd topping the charts, you know, so don't be too taken in. I did once take my mother to a, um, a package tour which had both Engelbert Humperdinck and Jimi Hendrix on the same bill. Um, one of those two artists she didn't much care for, but <laughs> uh, that was in the Tooting Granada. Um, the 60s, obviously, was this explosion of, firstly, arts for everyone, because you had this idea of theatre, kitchen sink. You had John Osborne and uh, um, um, yeah, Harold Pinter, and, you know, that, that idea of, of, of uh, the regional accent or the Cockney accent being suddenly, accept not only acceptable, but uh, uh, desirable. And so, you know, on the back of that, you had the David Baileys and the David Hockneys coming in, you know, and, and um, suddenly the arts were, were, the shackles were loosened, rather. But for us, for my generation, it was rock and roll. Obviously, it was the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Animals and the, the Kinks, especially for me. Uh, but above all, it was Bob Dylan. And um, when my brother brought home a, a Bob Dylan album, the times I were changing from school, my, my, I had two brothers, both older than me. Um, and he brought home the times I were changing, he put it on once, I was hooked. And then uh, a week or so later, I took that album into school and a very prescient and very, uh, 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 how should I say, uh, um, illuminating teacher saw me carrying that and said, if you like this, you might like Allen Ginsberg. You might like Jack Kerouac. You might like William Burroughs. You might like William Blake. You might like Dylan Thomas, blah, blah, blah. And he was one of those great teachers who switched on a light, which is still burning for me today. Um, his name was Beth Woodruff. I went to... Uh, um, a 2000 all-boys school in Brixton called Tulse Hill. It was a, a comprehensive school. It was an experimental comprehensive school in as much as I think it was opened in 1959 and I went in 1962 till 69. So I was there for seven years. But it was, it was an inner city, eight-story glass building, all boys. But it took some of its um aspiration if you like or ambition from the british public school system so at the first headmaster there had been deputy headmaster at dulwich college so that must have been such a culture shock for him <laughs> seeing black faces for a start you know that must have been what in the middle of brixton of course so suddenly you know we've got a headmaster there who thinks well, we'll have shooting, we'll have a debating society, we'll have a drama society, we'll have cross-country runs and hockey and archery on the lawn. And, you know, and we did. Um, and so when I was writing, I wrote this book a few years ago, a memoir. Um, and when I was writing that, I thought, you know what, my memories of school are pretty good. They're not um, like some people, oh, you know, I was abused or I was bullied. Yeah, that went on as, as it did and you sort of, took it on the chin, I guess, but um, as a formulating experience, I was lucky with some amazing teachers, uh, 
And I was always also lucky that I was able to leave my exams to the last minute and somehow get through them. Um, and one of the uh, alumnus, uh, alumni of uh, Tulsa School was Ken Livingston, mm. right? And when I was writing this, I'm, funny enough, I met him and I said, um, I've just been writing about Tulsa School and it, I, I realised that I've got pretty good memories of it 40 years later. How about you? He said, the only good memory I've got of Tulsa School is when I was mayor of London and I pulled the place down. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, you know, uh, the actor Kenneth Cranham went there, the fantastic uh, Caribbean poet Linton Kwesi Johnson was there, and Junior Jiscum, the, the mama used to say, uh, singer, he was there. It did get pulled down when, when Ken Livingston was mayor. I don't know if he was instrumental in it or, or whether they just happened to coincide, but, you know, as I say, my memories there uh, were good. And this one teacher in particular, Bev Woodruff, who turned on the light and got me into literature, which got me uh, into contemporary art as well, um, because the two things were sort of in, interlinked. And I, so I was there in 1967, say, when the first, what we called the Summer of Love, you know, with Sergeant Pepper and Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and all that sort of stuff. And, I found the Velvet Underground, which was this sort of coming together of uh, beat literature in the form of uh, Lou Reed, who was studying, I think, at Syracuse University, he was studying English under a, a writer called Delmore Schwartz, and John Cale, Welsh kid who was doing a scholarship in New York studying contemporary classical composition. And you get these two huge egos meet. And the sparks that fly made this music that was unlike anything I'd ever heard. I knew I'd love it even before I'd heard it because Andy Warhol had given it the thumbs up. <laughs> and, you know, he was the coolest man in the world right there. So there we had rock and roll and contemporary art and this idea of cool. You know, they wore shades indoors and leather jackets and, you know, they, they conducted monosyllabic interviews. What else do you want when you're 16? Exactly. <laughs> you uh, then take all those influences and then explode into the public consciousness in, in the early 70s and mid-70s with your band Doctors of Madness, which really, yeah. I mean, laid the ground for the punk movement that was to follow, signing up with, with Brian Morris and Justin Villeneuve. At the time, you, you said to one interviewer, John Ingham, in 1975, well, I, it's terribly sorry for quoting back stuff at you, but uh, said, I'm putting a bit of intellectualism into rock and roll. Very few people know how or have the inclination to do it. Ultimately, it has to be slightly didactic, which isn't to say you have to listen to it with a straight face. Uh, is that a philosophy that has stayed with you as a musician, or would you say you're... Really not. I don't remember saying that, but it sounds like the sort of nonsense I could have spouted in 1975 with a straight face. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I mean, this guy is a, a big influence on me, William mm. Burroughs, who is simultaneously the most terrifying writer, the most prescient and um, uh, clairvoyant of writers in his take on uh, 
systems of control on drugs, on, on uh, propaganda, on how society might go. But at the same time, his books are uh, hilarious as well in parts, you know. So it's not a case of, well, someone like Leonard Cohen, who you can slash your wrist to while you're laughing your head off. <laughs> exactly. you know? yeah. um, so the two are not mutually exclusive, I don't think. The, the early records that Doctors of Madness made, and you know, I suppose it's been a touchstone for me always, they're pretty dystopian and they're pretty dark. Um, and that comes a bit from Burroughs, but it comes from just my own temperament. I think I probably work better in a minor key than in a major key. Um, but we made some good rock and roll as well, and I think we could arguably claim to have made the very first punk record, which was a song of mine called Waiting, which was track one, side one, album one, came out in 1975 um, on our first album. And it was faster, more uh, flamboyant, more aggressive, more snotty than anything I'd heard before. And it was funny, we, like so many bands, then and now, we were in that classic, how do you get a gig when no one knows you? And how do you get known when you can't do any gigs? You know, and the record companies back then were the holy grail, if you like. That was what we all aspired to, was to get a record deal. But I've always been a person who's, who's been, uh, I think the, the, the contemporary word is proactive. Uh, you know, we used to just say he's a doer, you know. Um, and I'm not, and I never have been someone who sits around thinking, oh, the world's unfair, it owes me a living and no one's doing anything for me. I do it myself. So once I'd got the band together and I thought, this is sounding pretty much like I wanted to do, because we didn't have an agent, I went out and found this um, uh, a pub in, in Twickenham called the Cabbage Patch. And I went there, I think, on a Saturday or a Sunday night. And uh, there was no one there, but they had a music room. I said, are you always this empty? He said, yeah, we used to be music, but we don't do, don't do music anymore. I said, look, how come you're not doing music? You know, that would bring people in and they buy drinks. Just let it go, really. I said, would you give me four consecutive Saturdays there? Or four, it might have been four Sundays. I think I might have called it a month of Sundays. That's what I, I think that's what we do. Give me a month of Sundays. Um, and I'll bring more, you know, I looked around. There were literally three people there, you know. I said, I could double the number of people you've got in there. <laughs> but there were four of us in the band for a start, you know. So I was, I was on to a winner there. So I said, all right, we'll give it a go. So what happened? First night, we maybe played to 15, 20 people. Second one, 30, 40. Next one, 80. And then the next one, Full house, 120 people or something, going crazy. And we just happened to be brilliant that night. Smashed all our equipment up, you know, tore the place apart, came off stage, 
Uh, and then we're just having a beer and thinking, oh, now we've got to go back in front of all those people and take our drum kits down and <laughs> having been rock gods, you know, uh, and assess the damage that we'd just done to our own equipment as well. I didn't know how much it was going to cost. And that night, two people came into the dressing room, one after the other. The first one was Jonathan King, who was managing Genesis at the time, and said, are you guys signed to anyone? I hated Genesis, so we sent him out. <laughs> and the guy said to me, are you insane? That's Jonathan King, he manages Genesis. I said, hey, Genesis, it's not right for us. So they're just getting over it. Next thing, a sort of cigar comes into the dressing room, followed by a man smoking it, you know. And it's Brian Morrison. Brian Morrison is retired from the music business after managing and publishing Pink Floyd, T-Rex, um, uh, Fairport Convention, all sorts of people. Um, and he came in and he said, uh, that was all right. Uh, he said, what's your plans? I said, well, you know, we want to turn professional. At that point, we were all, all still working. He said, you prepared to work hard? He's saying, smoking a cigar. <laughs> work our ass up, you know. He said, all right, come in and see me on Monday. He gave us his card and it was Brian Morrison in um, Hyde Park Place or something. He got there. Gold discs all over the walls, you know, and it was kosher. And by the time I left, I'd signed management, recording, publishing, agency, everything. I'd signed away about 190% of my potential earnings for the rest of my life. But on that Monday, I was a professional musician, yeah. you know. And because Morrison was so connected, he said, right, I'm going to put you in the rehearsal room now for six weeks, going to lock you in there. I want you to work on your show, your songs, your play, your lights, your moves, your costume, your outfits, you know, whatever. He did it. And then at the end of that six weeks, he brought not just A&R men down, he brought the head of record companies down. He brought Clive Davis in. He brought Ahmed Ertigan from Atlantic Records in. Um, Freddie Beanstock from Phonogram. Every CEO of every record company came into this little rehearsal room and he would always say to us, give them three songs and get rid of them, you know. So, and that's what we did. We signed them and we were up and running. You know, we did a, a record deal in 1975. And then we went out on the road with a band called Bebop Deluxe. And we were touring the country, playing big halls. But, you know, we were at Manchester Free Trade Hall. We were Glasgow Empire. We were, um, you know, Bristol Colston Hall. We were Brighton Dome, you know, big, big rock venues. And we were up and running. Uh, so that was 1975. 1976, we started on our second album. And uh, I got a call from my agent. By this time, we were getting 800 people a night coming to see us, 1,000 people a night. And I got a call from my agent saying, I need you to do me a favour. You're the only guy I can think of to ask. I've got a manager who's driving me mad in London. He wants his band to do some gigs outside of London. Uh, the press already hate them and they already hate him, but they need experience. And it was the Sex Pistols, right? So he said, would you mind if I put the Pistols on as your support band in Middlesbrough, whatever it was. Uh, they're good as gold, he said, they're good as gold. You know, don't worry about all the stories. So, you know, we got up to our Middlesbrough gig and there they are, four school kids sitting there being really obnoxious, you know, flicking their noses and, and spitting on the floor. and. You know, really obnoxious, as you'd expect them to be. But they looked like they were bunking off school, you know, it was, it was like that. And we were doing our sound check, and 
eventually, you know, we finished and then they're like, oh, could we borrow your guitar or could we borrow your amplifier or something? We haven't got any equipment. And they already had this sort of reputation that anything they didn't steal, they would bust. <laughs> we were slightly sheep, we led them a bit of stuff anyway. So I listened to them doing their sound check and um, then more or less as soon as the sound check was finished, the doors opened, the kids flooded in all down the front. There was a bit of a buzz about them because they'd been in the music press, right? I thought, I'm just going to watch them. I, you know, I'm, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. As soon as they started playing to an audience, I got it immediately. And I didn't only get it. I knew that I was finished. You know, I knew that someone had just come and moved the goalposts. Uh, and it didn't matter that I already had blue hair when I was Kid Strange and my violinist was Urban Blitz and the drummer was Peter Dilemma, you know, and that we sang songs about paranoia and urban decay and, and uh, um, uh, control systems and stuff. Didn't matter. We weren't called punk rock. We were two years, three years too old. But this was punk rock. And even worse than that, while we were on stage, they nicked 12 quid out of my pocket. So I didn't only lose my career that night, I lost 12 quid. Funny enough, I saw, I saw um, Steve Jones many years later in Los Angeles, and he invited me onto it. He's a, he's a DJ out there now, Jones's Jukebox, and he invited me onto his show. I said, bring your guitar now with jam and so on. And I said to him on air, Steve, before we start, I haven't worn this pair of trousers for 35 years, and 12 quid seems to be missing out of the back pocket. I said, I last wore them in Middlesbrough. <laughs> he said, it's a fair copy. <laughs> he gave me $50 on air, you know. I said, I think that'll cover it, you know, including the inflation. So. <laughs> there is a, 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 you've said, you know, you were three years too old to be punk rock, but there, there is a glorious sweep of styles uh, amongst the, the Doctor's back catalogue. And I mean, it was in that period in the 70s that was the sort of era between eras, really. And I mean, as you said, very obviously punky sounds in, in, in Waiting um, and in your eponymous track, but then then Mainline comes in and, and covers every conceivable kind of sound across a quarter of an hour. Yeah, I mean, there was always... When I was conceiving the band, I, I, I could see it quite clearly before, even before I could hear it. I knew that we were like um, a bit of a sci-fi refugee, intergalactic, uh, rebellious caricature. You know, something, I could see it. Slightly cartoonish, um, but the cartoon quality was sort of undermined by the intensity of the, the lyrics and the music. So, you know, it, there was always a slight disconnect between what you were hearing and what you were seeing. Uh, and I sort of liked that. Funny enough, I saw the David Bowie show at uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum four or five years ago, the, the big exhibition of his costumes and his artifacts and his films and stuff. Something that he wrote next to uh, one of his costumes was incredibly interesting and uh, is something that I always say to students that I teach now. Well, he said, music has to look the way it sounds and sound the way it looks. If you think of Bruce Springsteen, if Bruce Springsteen looked like Prince, 
and saying, born in the USA. Similarly, if Prince looked like Bruce Springsteen, is ever going to party like it's 1999 or something? Or Michael Jackson, or the Sex Pistols, or, you know, these, these bands, these artists do look the way they sound. And because of that, the impact is, is doubled and redoubled because each reinforces the other. You can see a photo and you can hear the clash looked like the clash sounded, you know. Um, so the doctors and madness, as I said, we had blue hair, zips, we didn't have the safety pins, but we had the, I had the kid guitar, um, I was kid strange at the kids, kid shaped guitar. We had a violin that was going through 16 different sound processes. So it sounded like um, a, a thumbnail being scratched down a blackboard a lot of the time, you know, but that was what we wanted. And so taking some of that from William Burroughs, some of that from the Velvet Underground, some obviously from David Bowie and Roxy Music, who had happened before us, but punk rock hadn't happened until after us. The Damned used to come to all our shows, the adverts used to come to all our shows, Penetration, Joy Division supported us, the Skids supported us, the, um, uh, 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 what's his name, Julian Cope, um, Teardrop Exposed, they all supported us. Uh, Simple Minds supported us, you know, because we were the only band who got what they were doing. Because it was before they all got onto the front page of NME. And um, yeah, they were three years, four years, five years younger than us, I guess. Um, some of them a little bit more. I know Richard Jobson today is 60 years old, so he's nine years younger than me. He's just a kid. <laughs> the the dog was in there in the, the first incarnation certainly had quite a brief life and um when i was going through the research materials i had for this um there was a i'd been given a, a 1980 uh, interview that he did with giovanni dodomo himself of the sniveling shits for any yep. fans watching uh that shortly after the the band broke up you were hospitalized and said i went in with sickness and i came out with a novel an album and the equivalent of a new pair of eyes um, <laughs> <laughs> I realised that the whole thing the doctors were doing, I did, I didn't need at all. And having brought it to a close, I was completely free to make a new start. This sounds like a very transformative period. Absolutely. Well, you know, when you're well, nineteen seventy six, when the Sex Pistols supported us, I was twenty five, uh, and in a way, I was too old to retrain, although at 69, I've just been told to retrain. Um, so yeah, we'll give that a go, Rishi, no problem there. Um, I thought, well, what can I do? And it's something that I've subsequently learned as being uh, reflective practice. So what am I good at? What am I not good at? What might I succeed at doing? I think I'm a good songwriter. I'm a good front man. I'm good on the telephone, but I don't want to work in a call center. Um, what I'm not good at, I'm not a particularly good guitar player. Um, so putting these things together and I thought, hmm, okay, well, rethink it, rethink it. What are you going to do? And I thought, well, I've always been interested in the theatrical side. So I thought I'm going to do a one man show about what? And then I had this, uh, um, it was a, 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 an epiphany, I think. I had this idea of a show that came to me. Uh, which became known as the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange. And what it was, 
someone who had been working in show business, as we called it back then, understands all the techniques of crowd manipulation, of advertising, of propaganda, of control. And he uses these techniques to become president of what I imagine to be uh, a not too distant united Europe. So Europe had become a, a, a federation, if you like. This character, Richard Strange, starts off by thinking, wouldn't it be fun if you could fool all the people all the time? Mm. Of course, no one coming from show business could ever be president. Um, <laughs> this was 1978, and I wrote this thing, uh, 12 songs, and it was like a, what would you say, a rock opera, you know, but it was just me with uh, a tape recorder, uh, a few slides, a few Super 8 films, and a guitar. And I toured that around the, the, uh, the, the country, trying out these songs. Uh, then I toured America and Canada with it because I was cheap. I was a, a support act and I only had a tape recorder. So, and, and I had a bit of a name from the Docks of Madness, you know, so I was, a, I was a good support act because I only took up one place on the band, in, uh, on, on the bus. Uh, but I could maybe pull in 50 people, on my, you know, in, in, uh, in Tulsa. <laughs> um, so I did that and I went around America all the way around in the band literally a whole loop in eight weeks, playing just about every night. And when I got back to New York, someone came to a show that I was doing uh, in uh, a, a club called Hurrah and said, I really love what you do and I always, always love the Dr. Matters. Um, and his name is Michael Zilker. And Michael Zilker had a record company called Z Records in New York. And they had acts like Was Not Was, The Waitresses, Christina, who was his wife, band called Suicide, who I love. Uh, he said, I'd love to make a record with you. Fantastic. I'm, I was getting back on the horse, you know, having, having, you know, been a failed pop star a year earlier. I was getting back on the horse with the, with the, 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 the chicest record company in the world at that time. Mm. So we recorded the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange as I was doing it then, it was bizarre because we actually did a live album with me working with backing tracks, which is a strange thing to do. Um, then I came back to London. I thought, I don't want to work in rock clubs anymore. I want to work in, a, in an environment such as I've seen in, um, uh, in New York, where uh, multimedia arts are coming together under one roof. There were places like called the Pyramid and the PS1 and the Franklin Furnace and the Knitting Factory, places like that, where you would have Laurie Anderson, the Talking Heads, and Blondie, and uh, Eric Bogosian, and poetry and film, and, and video art was just starting up as well, 1980-81. And these places were fantastic, you know. Um, so I came back to London, there was nothing like that, so I thought, once again, if it's not there, make it yourself. And I found a club in uh, Soho uh, that again was empty, and again, I said I could bring people in. I've got an idea for a multimedia club with uh, spoken word, with uh, some comedy. Uh, alternative comedy was just starting up then as well with the, 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 the comic strip people, Alexi and uh, Rick Mayle and, and, and uh, Aid Edmondson and French and Saunders, all that sort of stuff, just coming in as well. Uh, and I said, I've got this idea, you know, we'll have 
video screens everywhere and uh, MTV was just starting up as well. And blah, 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 blah. Well, they said, yeah. So I started a club called Cabaret Futura in 1980. Uh, and that sort of exploded really, really quickly. It was just at the time that the fag end of punk had gone and all this shoegazing stuff had gone and people were dressing up to go out. So the Blitz thing was just starting with the old Doctors of Madness fan, Steve Harrington, who, because he was such a Doctors of Madness fan, had called himself Steve Strange, right? Right, and uh, announced it with some glee to me in a, 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 a dressing room in Newport or Bridge End or somewhere. And um, I didn't give it much more thought when he said, I'm going to change my name to Strange. But I did want to throttle him for about two years afterwards because people come up to me, are you anything to do with Steve Strange? I said, anything to do with him? I invented him. <laughs> <laughs> so Cabaret Futura got up and running and then Richard Branson came and he wanted to sign my album, The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange, because the club was so successful. Then he wanted me to, to run, he had a club called Heaven in, uh, in Charing Cross. He wanted me to run that, but uh, I quoted in the, um, the, the Talking Heads song, Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'll sign the record contract, but I, I, I won't run your club for you. And so, we did this funny deal on, the, on, on his boat. He used to live on a barge in uh, Maida Vale. And he didn't have a, um, a, a stereo on the barge. He has to go and listen to my cassette of the finished album in his car with his, uh, his partner, Simon Draper. And so after every song, they listen to a song. That first song's great. We offer you 54,000 for the album without hearing any more. Happy days again. Second one's great, 63,000. Third one's a dog, 14,000. <laughs> and of course, in the end, we ended up 54,000. I think that is in the end. But um, Branson, Beer Branson, had to go through this uh, charade of uh, negotiation and doing a deal, you know. So, yeah. And then that came out in 1981 when uh, Cabaret Futura was up and running, and that album came out, The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange. Um, and I behaved very badly for the next three or four years, I think. Uh, but someone came up to me and said, um, you know, this performance art club you're doing, have you ever done any acting? And I hadn't. And uh, it, acting, rather than being theatrical on stage with a rock band, hadn't really entered my orbit much. And she said, look, I'm working with a director called Frank Rodham. Um, and Frank had done a film called Quadrophenia with The Who. And uh, Frank was just about to do a film in France called The Bride with Sting and Jennifer Beals. And uh, it was a Frankenstein film. She said, come along and meet Frank. I said, I'm not really into it. She said, we're filming in Provence all through the summer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I went along and met Frank. And Frank's not particularly tall and I'm very tall. And so he looks at me and he said, wow, how tall are you? And I'm suddenly thinking, Frankenstein, he hasn't cast the monster yet, right? So I added about six inches to my height, you know, knowing that he wouldn't know because he was getting this stiff neck looking up at me. Um, and he said, oh, that's a shame. Um, the monsters we've cast is only six foot two and uh, I want someone to quake with fear in front of him, you know, and you've got a great face. Um, 
I said, well, put me in a wheelchair. You know, and he said, no, it wouldn't work. He said, anyway, who's your agent? I said, look, I've got a level with you. I'm here because Karina invited me to meet you. I'm not an actor at all. He said, you'll always work. You've got a voice and you've got a face. You know, he said, you'll never be the romantic lead. <laughs> um, but go and see this lady. And he introduced me to uh, my agent, who I've been with ever since. So that was 1983, I think. And she said, darling, I'll take you on for six months or six weeks. And I got really lucky. I started working straight away. Looking, I mean, looking at acting, what, what does it give you that the other art forms you engage in don't? And, and also, what do you think that you bring to it that somebody who maybe came at it from a more traditional route, via a more traditional route, wouldn't bring to it? Yeah. I think, for me, the, the essential difference between acting and what everything else I do, or most of the other things I do, acting is an interpretive art, and what I do is a creative art. And the, 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 the distinction I make between them is, do you start with a blank sheet of paper? Do you start with a blank canvas? Do you start sitting down at a piano, not knowing what you're gonna do, what that first chord is gonna be? That's creative art. Um, and I think there's, and this is not a, a, a value judgment on which is worth more or which is easier or harder to do, but the, the, the being confronted with that blank page, whether it's a literal blank page or a metaphorical blank page, like a, a blank canvas on an easel or something, or sitting down at the piano, that is tough. And that is one side of what I do. Being given a script and being told, interpret this in some way, is a bit like a violin player being given a manuscript of Beethoven or Bach and say, can you play this? And there's an infinite number of ways you can play it. And that is where the genius of uh, interpretive art comes from, in the subtlety and the nuance that you can bring to it, which is why you know a great actor when you see a great actor. You know, because you're thinking, I could never do that. And I don't even know what it is he's doing. But, you know, it's, um, yeah. So what I love about theatre and to an extent about film, if you're doing film for any length of time, and I've been lucky, I did Batman, I did Robin Hood, I did Gangs of New York, I did a bit of Harry Potter, I did um, Mona Lisa. What, what, is, what is lovely is, is working with actors. I really love that process, especially for theatre. The process of rehearsal is my favourite bit of, of, of acting, I think. You go through, you know, if you're lucky, you've got six weeks to go from nothing with a script to something that changes people's lives when they watch it. And if you're lucky, you're working with at least one or two people in a, in a company of 10, 15, who may be mates for the next 20 years, maybe mates for the rest of your life. Uh, and at its best, it's fun, it's, it's illuminating, it's inspiring, uh, and it's exciting, you know. Um, I was lucky, my first, 
theatre job was doing Hamlet with uh, a Russian director called Yuri Lubimov. And Yuri Lubimov had seen his work in London. He did Dostoevsky's uh, um, The Idiot and he did The Possessed at the Riverside in London. Incredible physical theatre like you'd never seen before. Um, uh, Russian to the core, you know, uh, architectural, stylized, mannerist movement everywhere, you know. And, um, I loved that. And <laughs> when I heard that um, he was casting for Hamlet, I said to my agent, I'd like to go. And she was a little bit like, darling, this is Shakespeare. You know, you've done, you've done morons from outer space with Mel Smith, you know, and it's not quite the same thing, dear. You know, I said, I know, I know, but I, you know, I love Luby Moff and, and I knew it was a world tour they were going to do for a year, a year and a half. So she said, well, good luck. The, um, uh, the auditions are tomorrow at the YMCA in London. If you want to get something together tonight, he wants a piece of Shakespeare uh, prepared for tomorrow. That was uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. I got up to my friend, Michael Crompton, who's a director. He's the only director I knew. I said, Michael, I need help. I need help. Um, I've got to prepare Shakespeare for tomorrow for Lubimov. I said, what's Lubimov? Everyone will be going for that job. I said, I know. He said, well, well, you better come over. Then how long have you got? I said, well, I've got all the afternoon, but I've got to be out for dinner tonight. <laughs> I said, five hours. He said, you're insane. I said, yep. So on my way over, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I'm starting a process of elimination. I know what I'm not going to do, and that is anything that anyone else is going to do. Because I know I can't compete, because these are real actors going from the RSC and the National Theatre and everywhere else they're going for these. You know, because this is a great gig. So um, I'm saying I'm not doing Henry V, I'm not doing Twelfth Night, I'm not doing anything from Leo, certainly not touching Hamlet, blah, blah, blah. Cleopatra. Anthony and Cleopatra. So I got to Michael's and I said, I've had a brilliant idea. You know that speech in Cleopatra where Cleopatra uh, hears that Mark Antony has married Octavia? I want to do her speech. He's like, Cleopatra's speech. Yeah, you know, I can't do anything that any other male actor is going to do. <laughs> he says, Are you sure? We've only got time to rehearse one piece. I said, let's go for it. So we did it. Uh, got it to um, a rather advanced degree of awful by five o'clock. And I said, but that's going to have to do. You know that. I went into the rehearsal, the, uh, the audition the next day, and I'm sitting outside, I'm waiting to go into the dentist, and you know, from beyond the door I hear, now is the winter of our discontentment. You know, thank, thank God I didn't do that. Once more under the breach too. <laughs> I have of late, wherefore I know not lost all my mouth. I didn't do that either, fantastic. So I went in, and there's Lubinoff at the end of the rehearsal room with his uh, uh, interpreter, because he doesn't speak a word of English. So I go in and I, the interpreter says to me, would you like to tell Mr. Lubimov what you've done on stage recently? And I say, would you like to tell Mr. Lubimov that I've not only not done anything on stage recently, I have never done anything on stage, except I was the lead singer with the proto-punk rock band, Doctors of Madness, I said. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, what are you um, what are you going to perform for Miss Lubimo? I'm going to perform a Cleopatra's speech on hearing the Mark Antony and Doctor. <laughs> 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 so anyway, I did it, and it was terrible. But God bless him. He said, "Bring, come tomorrow with this speech prepared uh, like Wagner." Uh, and he gave me the. Um, oh no, he said, "He said, come tomorrow with the Player King speech prepared as if Wagner had." Had, had, had composed it. Back to Michael. I've got to do the play. <laughs> the last thing I wanted, I wanted him either to say, you're the best actor I've ever seen in my life, or don't ever come into my role again. <laughs> so next day, I went back with uh, the player King done in my, in, in, in my own head as, as, as if uh, by Wagner. Come tomorrow, and then, you know, and I said, Miss Lubimov, this has been really lovely. Tomorrow I have to go to Germany to mix a new record. I've just been making a new record. It's been a great pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for all your advice. Mm. Goodbye. Two days later, I get the call from my agent. You've got the part. You're playing the player king, the first grave digger, and the ghost. <laughs> and... It's going to, it, it, it rehearses in uh, Leicester Haymarket, it comes down to the old Vic, and then we go to Japan, Australia, Poland, Germany, Holland, blah, blah, blah. So you can put a, a line through your next year. That's what he did. That's Jimmy Nesbitt was the other grave digger, his first job. <laughs> so James Nesbitt, uh, the Ulster man was there, yeah, and uh, Danny Webb was Hamlet. And um, who else? Andrew Jarvis was, Pol was um, uh, Claudius. Richard Durden was Polonius. Yeah. Annie White was uh, uh, Gertrude. Yeah. Lots of fun. The lineup. That's yeah. Right. Lloyd Owen was Leah. Yeah. yeah, they've all just come out of, a lot of the kids have just come out of college. You, uh, as well as being a, a prolific actor, you've also been a prolific curator of very diverse and interesting uh, cabaret and, 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 and other forms of sort of uh, mixed media art um, from the earliest days, as you've said, of, of Cabaret Futura. Um, what, what's your starting point when you begin to consider what sort of an evening you want to put together? And, what would I like to see? What would get me off? What would I find fascinating? Um, that's always a good good start point because I, I never believe or for myself I've never been able to write for a market mm. I've never been able, able to identify the market let alone write for it so all I can do is do something that I love and hope that enough other people will like it enough to get me through that next period of my life in some way um, so it's like when I was doing Cabaret Futura, for example, I put on uh, usually two bands a night. Uh, I put on a, a, a spoken word thing, always some performance art, always some poetry or um, uh, monologues of some sort, always something non-classifiable. There was always something that was messy, um, you know, where stuff would get thrown around. Um, and in those days, obviously, there was no internet. So the curation of uh, um, 
Cabaret Futura was very much a case of, and I was doing it once a week, not once a month. This was once a week and putting on six, seven acts a night once a week. Cassettes would come through the front door, flyers, I'd go and see stuff and I'd think, yes, no, maybe, maybe 10 minutes, five minutes, yeah, maybe. But, I mean, the great thing was, I was also able to see stuff that no one else had seen. I put Depeche Mode on for mm. 10 quid. I put Scott Sell on for 10 quid. The Pogues did their first ever show there. Mm. Uh, Sean, uh, Shane McGowan did their, his first ever show with the Pogues was at Cabaret Futura. Then Keith Allen and uh, um, um, a lot of the um, comic strip people came in and it, it, it got a buzz going because it was so eclectic. There was nothing like it in town and no one was on for more than 20 minutes. So you didn't have to worry that you were going to sit through, you know, a two hour long monologue and think that was a waste of money because there was always going to be something that you enjoyed there. Whether it was the music, whether it was this bizarre, you know, the disco Winstons who would set up an entire sort of war tableau with barbed wire and sandbags and trenches and stuff, uh, delivering uh, Churchill speeches to a disco beat. <laughs> you know, or, or the event group who had a, a, a cricket bat. They, they used to perform a piece called Run Out. They got Charlie, I think it was called. Just all in cricket whites. One of them with a cricket bat that was strung with bass guitar strings and a pickup on it, and it was plugged into an amplifier smashing oranges around the club um, to this deafening maelstrom of feedback and uh, um, overhanging harmonics coming from the, the, the amplified sound. You had to be there. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm, I'm only sorry, I wasn't. <laughs> uh... well, nor was I a lot of the time. Yeah, so to go back to your, uh, your, your question, for example, about six years ago, the Tate Gallery asked me to organise an event late at the Tate to uh, reference an exhibition that they had on by a Victorian artist called John Martin. John Martin's huge canvases of the apocalypse, the end of the world, basically. And uh, they said, would you like to do a late at the Tate that referenced John Martin and the Apocalypse. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's a great thing to do. They said, we can give you this gallery, uh, gallery number nine at Tate Millbank, uh, Tate Britain, uh, which was the um, pre-Raphaelite gallery, the main pre-Raphaelite gallery. And then you can have the vestibule and then you can have the lobby and everything. And they gave me, I don't know, a thousand quid or something to do it. They wanted me to fill up the evening they wanted me to come up with an idea, with a theme. So the, the idea of the apocalypse, and I started thinking about Mad Max and The Road and Blade Runner and things like that, and thinking, I, I always like the cabaret idea. It's, just, it's, a, it's a thing that David Lynch goes to quite a lot, this idea of the cabaret club, you know, or the, the, the weird um, inbred little entertainment somewhere. So because we had to have everything pretty much prefabricated, and everything had to have a falling distance of, I think, 10 feet from the nearest Edward Byrne Jones or John Millet painting, you know, just in case it fell. So we went in, 
And I had this idea, uh, Cabaret Apocalyptica, the last cabaret on earth, you know. And I got some really good people to do it. Kate Tempest, the poet, uh, was uh, someone I'd worked with before. And I said to Kate, you would be brilliant for this. Come in and, and be uh, as righteous as a, a, an Old Testament prophetess, you know. Uh, and she did exactly like Gavin Turp, the artist, came and did something. Richard Wilson, the artist, did something. Um, I had chalice, I had people in um, Haskem suits everywhere, you know, with masks. And um, we had 3,000 people go through over the course of the night. I did a sort of um, weird cabaret host shtick for the whole evening where I had a, a camera fixed into my eye. Um, uh, that was beaming directly onto a big screen so that wherever I looked, they had my line of vision on the screen and I, I, was, I had a gold alarme suit on and I was singing the James, uh, uh, what was his name? Jim Reeves song, Welcome to My World, <laughs> over and over again on a loop, you know. So it was like a, you're an absolute nightmare cabaret, I think. Yeah. It was oh, great. <laughs> That's um, don't tell me those Light of the Tape is such a great series. And yeah, they, they do. Really well, yeah, I've got so much time from there. But you know, stuff like that, of course, that we miss at the moment. I mm. went to a well, fantastic exhibition last week at the Marion Goodman Gallery. But you know, you have to you have to book your time slot now. And uh, I mean, with the Marion Goodman, there's an artist called. Um, uh, 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 Tavares Strachan, um, uh, uh, an American artist who did a wonderful, wonderful installation and performance with music and uh, with fantastic two-dimensional and three-dimensional work taken over the whole gallery. And it was an hour long. The, ex <coughs> the experience was an hour long. So you were booked in almost like uh, going to uh, a live performance as, as much as going to a, a, an art exhibition pictures on the wall. That was great, but I do miss that. I, mean, I do miss that um, uh, that ability right now to just, on a whim, to go to the Tate or the National Gallery, and not to have to queue, not to have to book a slot, not to have to, you know. But mm. everyone's missing something now. I know that. You know, these are extraordinary times we're living in. Well, they are. I mean, we're certainly... you might even say they are dark times we are living. <laughs> Now out on vinyl. And there will be a link to where you can buy that. <laughs> um, you're, you're, you're just moving into the, the discussing the, what I was going to ask next anyway, which is we're currently in a, in a very parlous situation uh, with regard to society at large and the, the arts in particular um, and the UK government's refusal to acknowledge how vital our sector is. Um, I... I was greatly moved by your new recording of your 97 Elegy, Sleep the Gentle Sleep, as a tribute to all those who, yeah. who passed during the pandemic. But is that song also going to have to be appended to the creative industries? Or can you see a route through what we're going through at the moment? Well, I certainly don't see it returning to normal now. I mean, I, like everyone else, I've, I've lived a very abnormal, well, I've lived an abnormal life from the age of about 15. But the last six months have been very, very odd. And, you know, as I've explained over 
last few minutes that I tend to try and make my own opportunities out of things if, if they don't exist. And so I, um, for example, the, the first day of lockdown, March the 16th or whenever it was, I thought, what am I going to get up to do? I've got to have a project. Mm. I've got to have something that gets me out of bed in the morning. Otherwise, um, uh, that's, that's dangerous for me. So um, this book, this uh, memoir came out in uh, 2004 um, when I was 51. When I wrote it when I was 50, and I thought, I'm old enough to write a memoir now and tell some of the stories that I've, I've um, told you. Um, but that never came out as an audio book. So I thought, right, every day I'm going to read a uh, half hour from this. I, however long it takes, I can see this lockdown extending, you know, weeks and that's fine. I've got a recording set up here um, that works for me. So I can show you here. We got that, we got that, we got that, and we got that, and we got that. You know, and, ah, there's you. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was geared up to, to, to do that okay. So I thought, yeah, I'm just going to read chapter a day and that took about i think i did it in 50 chapters because i was 50 years old i did i thought 50 chapters is what's that seven weeks no i was only doing five days a week so 10 weeks did that now came to so now what so then i thought i'm gonna start my own radio station dark times radio right uh initially thinking of it as a a, a tool to introduce people to my music so i thought I've just played stuff that I've worked on, uh, produced, recorded, written, uh, collaborated on, and whatever. But then I thought, oh, that's a little bit uh, uh, narcissistic. I'll do music that I've been inspired by uh, over the years as well. And that started off as a, a one-hour show, just going up more or less as a podcast on SoundCloud. And now I do that once a week as a two-hour show, but it also goes out on... Portobello Radio and it goes out on Radio Scarborough and it goes out in Portugal and it goes out in Japan as well. So, um, and I really enjoy that. I like playing music and I like um, discovering new stuff and, 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 and raiding my own archive and, and contextualizing it and giving a bit of background on, about a certain song or a certain, uh, uh, how a certain meeting or a, a collaboration came, came about or something. But also, gives me great pleasure introducing people to other people's music as well that I just happen to think is, is great. So I've been doing that and my daughter's a singer so I've been producing a record for her here um, which has been fun so that's, um, that's all going ahead and I work a lot in education now so I've been working with um, BA um, higher education um, BA students, uh, undergrads, uh, for about 10 years now as a, as a visiting lecturer or as an a, um, hourly paid lecturer or, or um, guest lecturer or whatever, talking about um, mainly about risk taking, about uh, daring to fail, because my life is a catalogue of failure, thank God. Because, you know, if, if Doctors of Madness had had one hit, in 1976-77. Uh, evidence suggests that I might have been able to 
eke out a living from that one hit for the rest of my professional life. Um, the 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 case in point I always uh, uh, reference is Peter Sarstedt. Where do you go to, my lovely? Right. About uh, fifteen years ago, I had an acting job on a German TV program. Every week, I played an English butler who spoke very bad German, something I do very well. Yeah. Um, and it was like a, a prime time Saturday night family show. So it was a, it was games. It was, it was Noel Edmonds, but in German, right? So, so, but it was the biggest artists in the world would come. So you'd have Sophia Loren, you'd have uh, John Cleese, the Spice Girls, the Bee Gees, whoever was in Germany and had something to flog. You know, Omar Sharif when he had his, uh, his line of fragrances. You know, one in a sphinx and one in a, a pyramid, you know. Um, uh, and I would be the butler on those shows, you know. And um, it was, like, I just thought, this is just so ridiculous, uh, what I'm doing. And I don't really know where it goes or how it ends, but it's sort of okay doing this to, Treadward, not least because it was in Germany, no one over here ever saw it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's about it's about daring to fail and um, embracing a challenge. Or that sounds a, a bit of a cliche, I know, but uh, um, embracing the unknown uh, and daring to fall off the horse and get back on it again and, and try and find a different way to ride it. I, I think the most um, deliciously varied careers often come out of being able to, to do just that, don't they? I mean, it's, it's um, those that sort of hit their stride very early on and tend to end up doing quite a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, you just... As a, a sideline, since we've come close to the, the, the end of the, the, the main part of this, um, um, you've worked an impressively long list of, of international institutions and have also, uh, with your partner, developed links between Latin College of Fashion and the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance. Uh, arts education, uh, whatever about the arts as a sector, certainly arts education has probably never been under a greater threat than it is no. now and has been for some years. What, what can and should arts educators, in your view, be doing to help promote how absolutely essential creative education is? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think people, not people, some people think that you have life and you have art. <laughs> but they don't recognize that that is art, that is someone's design, you know, someone has, has made that. Some, every advertisement we see, every piece of clothing we see, every little piece of music that we see, every, uh, um, every TV program that we see, uh, um, all comes from art. Uh, our entire culture is comprised of stuff that doesn't grow naturally. Culture is what doesn't happen out there naturally, whether it's language, recipes, sport, manners, clothes, haircuts, 
This is all stuff that um, comes from uh, man's desire to make, to refine, to find systems of, of, uh, of, of, of living together, of identifying with each other, of uh, recognizing our own particular tribe, whether it's with language, whether it's the way we dress, whether it's the way we eat with a knife and fork or with our hands or so. All this is culture and you know, people, when, 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 when people try to get us to narrow our vision of what being British is, say, what they're deliberately and I think cynically doing is denying the fact that we are mongrels, that the Brits did not emerge from the egg fully formed saying, oh, after you, shall we go to Ascot, you know, and play cricket? You know, this comes from thousands and thousands of years of invasion, of trade, of the exchange of ideas, of language bolting on new thing. Everything we love in this country is uh, an import from some, uh, uh, refugee or from some invader, whether it's the Christmas tree or the Jim Carner or coffee, you know, or beer or, uh, you know, the pizza or the vindaloo, you know, everything we hold dear in this country, forget the language, you know, everything we say is either Latin, German or, you know, Hispanic or Indian or Arabic, you know, and yeah, these people, you know who I'm talking about. The people who deny that our culture is enriched by refugees, by immigrants. These people who um, uh, think that our culture would be richer if it was impoverished by losing the taint of the other uh, and just being what we think we are. These people know nothing of our history. They know nothing of the history they purport to want to protect. You know, we are what we are because of the last 2,000 years of invasion, of trade, of influences on us, of Huguenots, of Jews, of Irish, of East Asians, of uh, Eastern Europeans coming here because they're being persecuted somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, indeed. It's um, the um, it was written about so beautifully in the welcoming land. Uh, you know, it's the um, great poem about it. It's, which, of course, has now come out for a century on, and people have have just forgotten the fact that this this was a land that that welcomed and, and enriched itself. I mean, occasionally enriched it quite often enriched itself by rather dubious means, but nevertheless, Absolutely. culturally Absolutely. enriched itself from the outside. So, I agree entirely with what you're saying. What, Richard, do you still want to achieve? It was funny. Um, at, uh, in 2014, uh, it was William Burroughs' uh, centenary year. He was born in 1914 in St. Louis, Missouri. And he'd been a huge influence on me, as I mentioned earlier. And so in 2014, uh, I thought, I'm going to do something to celebrate Burroughs. Now, in, in my head, I was going to do an evening above a pub somewhere, 
um, reading some burrows, showing some film clips, maybe playing some of my songs that have been influenced most by him. And then I thought that's a bit tame. That's pretty much what I've been doing. So I thought what I'd really like to do is write an opera based on Burroughs. And then I was talking to a friend of mine, a teaching colleague, and I said to her, I'd really like to write an opera about, or or influenced or referencing William Burroughs. She said, what do you mean? Do you want to do the libretto or you want to do the music? I said, no, I'd I'd like to do the libretto. I'd like to take Burroughs' words, add my own, take incidents and blah, blah, blah. And she said, and if you could work with any composer living, who would it be? And I said, Gavin Bryars, who I'd met up in Leicester when we were doing Hamlet many, many years ago. I said, then Gavin Bryars. And she said, he's my next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and so the die was cast and I got in touch with Gavin and um, he said, well, I'm coming through London, but I'm about to do a year long world tour. I said, well, can I do an elevator pitch to you in Carluccio's on St. Pancras Station before you go off to Paris? He said, fine, it'd be nice to see you anyway. I said, William Burroughs, um, Centenary, Opera. He said, yeah. I said, you and me. He said, I haven't got time to do an opera, but it's an interesting idea. What about a, a cantata, like a, like a short? I said, great, 20 minutes, he said. Uh, he said, I won't be able to meet you uh, because I'm going to be away for the next year. Uh, we'll have to do it all by email. I said, oh, okay. Right. I said, I've just been thinking about it. The, it's it's three, uh, three acts. And the middle act is where he shoots his wife in a hotel room in Mexico while she's got a gin and tonic on her head and he misses. Right. And I said, and if I could just ask you that the third act starts with a piece for 400 electric guitars. how about eight i said ten he said okay ten so that was it and then we did this thing and then it was a bit like a poison chalice at that point because suddenly it got this was no longer going to work in a room above a pub in kilburn or somewhere you know um so i had this precious jewel uh, a world premiere of a a gavin Bryars cantata that i was going to write with him uh, but it was only 20 minutes long, which is not a whole evening. So I went to uh, a chap called James Runcie, who was running the uh, London Literature Festival on the South Bank. And I said, are you doing anything Burroughs related this year? It's his, it's his centenary. He said, no, no. I said, can I do this and, and put an evening together? He said, you promise it won't be boring. I said, I promise it will be anything but boring. So. Uh, that became the sort of centerpiece of it, uh, the, the piece that I did with Gavin. But I got uh, Sarah Jane Morris and I got uh, Rupert Thompson, the writer, and Luca Silvestrini, the choreographer, and uh, Jeremy Reed, the poet, all to uh, contribute a, a 10 minute, 15 minute piece since inspired or referencing Burroughs. And we did a, a whole evening. And the, uh, the, the opera, uh, actually got his first and only um, uh, performance that night. We didn't have a rehearsal. Uh, everything had been done um, uh, uh, sort of virtually. Yeah. Uh, so I've been working with the stage crew. I knew roughly who had to move where. 
when a gun had to be flown in, when there had to be a projection. So, so you know, that was fantastic for me and that was absolutely exhausting. Uh, but that was a real ambition. Now, I think what I'd like to do is um, see this through and see where it leads. But I'd really love to play to people again. I mean, if I've got an ambition now, uh, something that seems so mundane, so uh, banal, what you want to play gigs, yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, um, I really do, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I miss it. I miss it. Um, uh, so, um, I've been writing a lot of new songs. I've been working with students. I've been working with master students and uh, undergrads. We do a lot of marketing. I've been on panels of um, uh, awards and stuff. And it's great. I love working with young people and I find them really, really uh, inspiring. I learn a lot from them, especially music, where, you know, the, the idea of uh, uh, their career being anything like mine. Is, is so remote now because you know that idea of the record company now signing someone uh, on the strength of a gig that they'd seen in a pub in, in, uh, in Twickenham rather than on the strength of the fact they've had five million views on YouTube. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's another story and it's really hard now. It's, what's happened is the, the, the process of uh, making and recording music was democratized because you can do it on a laptop now. I've got more stuff on my laptop than they had in Abbey Road when I made a record there in 1976. And they were charging 150 quid an hour or something. Mm. So the technology has become democratized. It's still the distribution though. If everyone could make records now, if everyone could make music, they all sound fantastic because the computer, the digital uh, interfaces now are so good and so easy to use you still got to get your head above the rest of the crowd and say, listen to this. And that's the really hard bit. Yeah. You know, especially now that radio doesn't have the role that it used to have. Exactly. And there's no music press. You know, like when in the 1970s, the New Music Express and Melody Maker were kingmakers. If you got your face on the front of NME or, or Melody Maker, you were guaranteed a chart record the next week. Guaranteed. If you've got a good review or a big feature, guaranteed. Now they give NME away at the tube station and no one reads it because it's rubbish. Uh, but music journalism has gone to a mm. great extent now. And it's, um, and the, yes, because I, I just don't, I, the, the great music journalists really had a, a such a diverse understanding of everything they were writing about and it's just not then either not they're not coming up through an industry that allowed them to make the music and then realize that actually where their talent lay was in writing about it but it's also even now in the the world we live in where everything can be taught on a course and then you just go straight in uh it's not even really teaching much in the way of music journalism now i mean there are a few places that are i think but it's mm. Mm. well and also Maybe we were just a period in history where music was the paragon, mm. where music was the mouthpiece. It was what 
people gravitated to. You know, there was a little bit of that back in the 90s when contemporary art became the new rock and roll with Damien Hurst and Tracy and, uh, you know, the Chapman brothers and Gavin Turk and Gary Hume and Anthony Gormley and all that mob. You know, it was all right, that's the new rock and roll. Or it was stand-up comedy yeah. was the new rock and roll. Uh, and it might be that it's just gone. You know, it had its moment. I was lucky enough to be white, male, English-speaking, and ambitious enough to want to learn four chords or three chords uh, at a time when that was your passport out of Tooting Beck. Yeah. You know, um, and it might now be that being an Instagram influencer or being a games designer or something is what you aspire to. And music's still going on, just like opera was still going on in the 70s. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't exactly the driving force. Yeah. It wasn't the rallying point, you know, that it was in the 60s, rallying point for protests, for example. You know, with Dylan and, and the Beatles and Joan Baez and, you know, protest music generally. Uh, it, it was a hugely powerful uh, uh, flag around which young people could rally. Um, I have been wondering this year, when we've seen a, a big upsurge in protest on a variety of, of, of topics, when I would hear the first of this generation's protest songs to go with it, and I haven't heard it yet. No, but, um, no I can't say I have. Um, no, not, 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 no, I don't think I've heard the great uh, uh, protest song. Uh, you know what, it, Paddy, it may be happening in rap, and it probably is. Uh, and it might just be that um, it's been handed over, you know, and uh, too old, too white. Richard, we always finish um, the, the main part of each interview with, um, uh, with each guest uh, giving a, a tip of the cap to James Lipton, who was founder of the Inside the Actors Studio, who died this year. Uh, he asked the same 10 questions of every subject that he had, regardless of where they came from um, or what they were doing. Uh, so we've been asking each of our guests these as well. Um, what is your favourite word? Luscious. And your least favourite? It's hyphenated, 24-7. <laughs> um, what excites you? Novelty. And what turns you off? Mediocrity. What sound or noise do you love? Boy uh, uh, soprano. And what sound or noise do you utterly hate? Mariah Carey. What is your favourite swear word? Bollocks. What profession other than the various ones that you already undertake would you like to attempt? Priest. And what profession would you absolutely not want to do? Vicar. <laughs> um, taking those last two in mind and, and, and what we've said already, uh, regardless of what your personal beliefs may be on uh, during uh, this life, if 
when your time comes, you discover that heaven does indeed exist. What would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Thank God you've come. This place was so boring. <laughs> Richard, you're going to play us out, um, which we're very grateful for, with a number which we've already mentioned, um, uh, Sleep the Gentle Sleep. Um, please do uh, tell us a bit about that. And, and, uh, yeah, and again, friend, thank you very much. My friend Kathy Acker, the American novelist who wrote um, Love and Guts in High School and uh, Pussy and the Pirates and all that stuff. She was a great, great friend and she lived in London for a long time at the end of her life. And she developed this very aggressive cancer um, which necessitated um, very radical surgery here. Uh, and still it kept coming back. So she'd heard about a sort of shamanistic herbal sort of remedy that was happening in America, so in uh, uh, Mexico, so new that it hadn't even been licensed in America. And she went to Tijuana uh, to undertake a course with this. Uh, and sadly, she was dead within three weeks from, uh, from getting to Tijuana. And this song, Sleep the Gentle Sleep, is just a, a lament for her, but also sort of a lament for the arts at the moment. The only difference being that I believe in resurrection for the arts, but I think I've lost Kathy forever. So uh, let's hope uh, at least one of these two things come back. You know, this is Sleep the Gentle Sleep. Well, the last train is gone. Snow has covered everything. Farming for us a drink, so I guess we're staying on. I just got the news, so anyway, I couldn't go. Cause we lost that final showdown in Tijuana, Mexico. This year, I swear. The winter will be colder and the air will freeze my tears cause you're not here. Hey now now, hey now now, hey now now, sleep the gentle sleep. Well, the wind is whipping through the trees and the icy sky is so clear. You can see that whole damn tattoo blue. And this pain in my heart tearing me apart. It's like a drunken voice that keeps worrying at a tune. Ah, but somewhere out there. I swear that there's a space forever empty, forever blue, forever you. Hey now now, hey now now, hey now now, sleep a gentle sleep. Hey now now, hey now now, now now. Hey, now, now, will you sleep 
the gentle sleep. Richard, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for uh, doing such lovely research and asking such interesting questions and pushing the right buttons. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Richard Strange, written, presented, and edited by Paddy Cooper, theme music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, the Richard Strange Photo and Video Archive, Christian Thomas, Giesbert Hanacott and Red Friends, and Mick Rock, Paul Ryder, and the New Musical Express. Sleep the Gentle Sleep is written and performed by Richard Strange and published by Mirage Music Management Limited. The series has been executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Stoughton. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.